0: thank you for tuning in to our podcast salt and light where we'll cover foundational principles for being a disciple of jesus christ enjoy this episode with ears to hear and hearts that listen so let's go check the facts with your host also known as my dad casey harrison Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Salt and Light Ministries, where we have actually been going through the Foundations series on how to build your house of relationship with God. We've actually been using this example of a house to go through how you build a house in order to figure out how to build that house of relationship with Him. And when you build a house, you have to have a strong foundation, which means you have to dig out all the misconceptions about God, the ideas and judgments you've already made and planned out in your mind. Basically you had to forget what you already know in order to build this foundation or forget what you think you already know. And then we talked about the basics of the conversation with God. That's reading your Bible in prayer. You know, prayer is not a wish list; It's a dialogue. Prayer is your part of the conversation. When you read the Bible, that's God's part of the conversation back to you. And the goal of all of this is to become what Jesus told us to be in Matthew 5, 13 through 16, salt and light. That's the final product of our house of relationship. To speak boldly without altering God's Word, while saying it in a kind and loving manner, allowing the Holy Spirit's light to shine through our actions and our speech. And then we went through seven weeks of a mini-series called Submitting to Sovereignty. And that was the concrete being poured into the foundation of your house of relationship. And throughout that mini-series, we talked about mutual submission and what that actually means. In order for any relationship to work, both parties have to submit to each other in some shape, form, or fashion. And in order to submit, you have to know the limits of the other party. You also have to know how much control they can handle. God's unlimited and can handle all control because creation is his creation. He sets the limits, not us. Mankind's limited in our control and our actions because God only gave us dominion over a specific part of this world, and that's the earth. And we've already proven that we can only handle limited control. Just go back to Genesis 1 chapters 1 through 3 and you can see that. We're broken people. Then we discovered the difference between sovereignty, control and cause. Sovereignty literally means control and control is the power or the ability to influence people in a situation, whereas cause is the ability to make something happen or to make a person do something. And throughout the scriptures, we saw that God does have both control and cause. God does use both control and cause, just not all the time. Because God limited himself, since he's the only one that can set limits. He limited himself in his use of, the, of making things happen. And the way he limited himself is he gave that portion of control over to mankind in the book of Genesis. Giving man a limited cause in the process. Granted, it's all by God's design. And since it's all by his design, God can always take that control back at any time because he's the ultimate authority. He's supreme. He's over creation. And when he takes that control back, that's literally called death. And you can see that with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, 1 through 11. And then we learn the difference in submission and subjugation. Submission is yielding your will to a supreme authority. Subjugation is forcing your will on others. Scripture also says that God doesn't subjugate us. He doesn't force His will on us. He's a gentleman. He doesn't try to cause us to love Him. What God does do is He asks us to submit to Him. And if we choose to submit to Him, then we're choosing that relationship with Him. And since God doesn't ask us to do anything that He hasn't already done, He first had to submit. Well, God's the supreme authority. He can't submit to man, so what does he do? Jesus, the Son of God, decides to shed off his divinity, become 100% man and 100% God, die on a cross to be the perfect sacrifice so that we don't have to die back in Philippians 2, verses 5-11. And God submitted to himself. God submitted to himself through the body of a man. That completed his side of the mutual submission. And our side of the mutual submission looks a little bit different, but we have to go off the same basic principles that Jesus left us to act out. And those principles are to ask for God's help because we can't do anything without God. Scripture's very clear on that. And then we have to seek out how Jesus did it and then knock for the opportunity to imitate Jesus. Basically, before any decision that we make, we have to ask God, seek the answer, and then knock on the opportunity so the door can open. That's our side of the mutual submission. And when we act out that mutual submission with God, we have a firm foundation for that relationship with God, for building our house. Look, we all submit to something. You're either going to submit to a sin-enveloped life of fear or a spirit-empowered life of faith. One of two selves. When you submit to God, you're literally giving over the control that He gave you in the beginning. You're giving it back to Him. You're giving back... Your ability to cause something to happen, to allow God to cause things to happen in your life. Only then can you claim that God caused a situation to happen because you're only doing what you have seen your father do, and you're only saying what you heard your father say, just like Jesus talked about in John twelve forty nine and John five nineteen. And that was the foundation series. So now that the foundation series is completed, we have a firm foundation for this house that we're going to build. It's about time to start framing it up. But before we can put the frame up, we have to go to our toolbox and see what we have to work with, because you can't build a structure without tools. And that's where we're going to start this week on this new series called Toolbox. Originally, it was, I wanted to do a one and done episode, and every time I make a plan, God seems to want to erase it out of the, out of the book and do his own thing which, if that's the cost of being submitted to sovereignty, so be it. So let's look today at what tools did God give us to build with. And there's two types of tools. You have external tools and internal tools. Today, we're going to be talking about one of the external tools God gave us, and that's the Bible. Now, some of you might be asking, how is the Bible a tool? Well, 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. How's the Bible a tool? It teaches us. It calls us out when we're doing wrong. It gives us a way to course correct after we make a wrong choice. And then it gives us the example of being righteous. And what that means is to be in right standing and what that looks like with God. I'm not gonna deny that there are people out there that would say that the Bible's not historically accurate. And you, know, you know, over time and translations from translation to translation, there's no way that it could be the same as the original text. Because of that, it can't be an authoritative book. There's even people that say that the Bible contradicts itself. And since the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, they say they found other books that were written uh, during that time frame, like Enoch in the book of Thomas. So since they were left out, then the Holy Bible that as we know it today can't be trusted. Ultimately, it's going to come down to faith. You're always going to have a naysayer, but it's going to come down to who are you going to trust God or the world, what God said about himself or what people say about God. And I'm not going to sit here and try and sway you one way or the other, because it's not my job to persuade you that's on God. John 6:44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So it's God's job to invite you in. My job, your job, is to allow the Holy Spirit to use us as he sees fit to open up the opportunity for the Holy Spirit to draw people in. Because remember, God's a gentleman. How do I know that to be true? Romans 10:14. how then shall they call on him who they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? I say what God wants me to say, God invites them in. But then it's on them to accept the invitation. God's not up in heaven picking and choosing at his leisure who he's going to save and who he's not. Hmm, I like him, I don't like her. If that were the case, then God lied in Romans 10, 13, where it says, For whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And God doesn't lie, so that's just proof that it's not a contradiction. And we'll get into that in a minute. But those were facts based on the Bible as to why the Bible's true and why I believe what I believe. But let's look at some scientific fact that backs up the validity of the Bible, and then you can choose for yourself. Just always remember one thing, and I want to make this very clear. This ministry will always consider the Bible to be the God-inspired written word, accurate historically and spiritually, and the final word. And let's focus on for a moment the Bible as a historical reference because that's one aspect of how the Bible is a tool for us to use. It is a historical reference, but is it historically accurate? Well, in an article by Russ Wheaton titled, Have You Wondered, Is the Bible Historically Accurate? He stated, Modern archaeology has helped us realize that the Bible is historically accurate, even down to the smallest detail. And there's been thousands of archaeological discoveries in the past century that support every book of the Bible. He goes on to list a few examples in that article. You know, Skeptics and critics believe that the Bible was a mythical creation of an ancient Hebrew writer or ancient Hebrew writers. Those skeptics and critics believe that King David was a legendary mythical creature because there's no archeological evidence that supported him as a historical figure. That was until 1994 when archeologists discovered an ancient stone slab in Northern Galilee with inscriptions referencing King David and the House of David. Critics also believed the people group known as the Hittites, which is mentioned a little bit over 40 times in the Old Testament, never actually existed outside of the stories of the Old Testament. The reason they believed that is because there was no evidence of that civilization outside of the Bible. Until 1906, when a German archeologist named Hugo Winkler discovered the capital city of the ancient Hittite empire while excavating in Turkey. What makes them believe that it's the capital city of the ancient Hittite empire? Because there was irrefutable evidence found in this massive library during this excavation, 10,000 clay tablets documenting the Hittite history. And scholars did what scholars always do. They went scholarly. (laughs) They translated those tablets and compared them to the Bible and found that everything the Bible said about the Hittite empire was true. Sounds historically accurate to me, but the skeptics and critics keep not believing because they didn't believe that the book of Daniel could be considered historically accurate. Mainly because it mentioned a Babylonian king named Belshazzar. And at the time, there had been no evidence of a Belshazzar ever existing. Until 1854, when Henry Rawlingson discovered an inscription in Iraq that named Belshazzar as the oldest son and co-regent of King if I get this wrong, I'm sorry, the which actually clarified a scripture in Daniel chapter 5, 29, where Daniel is elevated to the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Belshazzar was the second highest ruler. So there's evidence backing up Daniel. And then a well-known historical scholar and archaeologist, Sir William Ramsey, tried to actually disprove the Bible as the inspired word of God. And he was going to disprove it by showing that the book of Acts was not historically accurate. How do you think that went? Well, I'll tell you. After 30 years of research in the Middle East, Ramsey concluded, and I quote, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy. The author should be placed along with the very greatest historians. Ramsey also later went on to write a book called The Trustworthiness of the Bible. I could keep going because there's a lot more examples in this article, but I think it's safe to say that from a scientific standpoint, the Bible is historically accurate. Now, if the Bible is historically accurate, can you say that the Bible of today is reliable? I mean, it has gone through translation after translation after translation. Could it have been altered from its original transcripts? Well, Mr. Wheaton also writes that critics used to believe that the Old Testament simply could not be reliable because they felt that over a long period of time, the Old Testament writings would have been changed, altered, edited, or corrupted. You know what? That's actually a legitimate argument. Because I went online and asked the question, what's the typical accuracy rating after a book's been translated? Once. And Quora.com, Q-U-O-R-A.com, said basically every translation, no matter what language it's in, will never be an exact replica of the original book. So the short reply to your question, not accurate at all, ever. That's good to know. Except that didn't apply to the Bible. See, the only problem with that is, in 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And these scrolls contained, among other writings, every book of the Old Testament except for Esther. In fact, until the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, the earliest copy of the Old Testament was from around AD 900. So of course, scholars did what scholars do. They went scholarly again, and they compared the 8900 transcripts to the Dead Sea Scroll transcripts, and there's about a thousand year difference between the two, some experts say. And what do you think they found? They found that the Old Testament had been handed down accurately through the centuries. Now keep in mind that before 8900, and back in those days, a typical way of passing down information through the generations was by word of mouth especially in the early days of the Old Testament, back in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Word of mouth is the typical way to pass down information through the generations. So the telephone game was the way they kept track of their history. And we all know how the telephone game works. But that wasn't the case of the Bible. Multiple translations into multiple languages from multiple different locations on earth And they still all translate to an accuracy rating of about 99.5%. And that number comes from Bible.org. How accurate is the Bible? Kemboa.org. K-E-N-B-O-A.org. Neverthirsty.org states that some English translations can be as accurate as 99.9%. What it boils down to is the Bible is the only book that's ever been translated into multiple languages with that high of an accuracy rating. No other book can hold a candle to that. So could there be some inconsistencies between translations? Of course. Look, we're talking about different languages and we're also talking about human beings translating the Bible. That's why it's 99.5% to 99.9% accurate. Not 100%. We're humans, we're not perfect. But a 99% accuracy should point to the fact that it really wasn't us preserving it. And once we realize that we're not the ones preserving it, We need to go on a mission to find out who did preserve it. Oh, wait, we know. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1-1 Look, say what you want. Let the skeptics and the critics say what they want. But I'm going to pose this question. If archaeology has validated the Bible as a true historical document, and the majority of the Bible has been proven historically accurate, then what basis do we have to say that any of it's wrong? I mean, granted, people get things wrong every day, sometimes on purpose, sometimes by mistake. You know, that's to be expected. The factual scientific evidence is too overwhelming to overlook, which means God doesn't get things wrong. And if there's a part of the Bible that contradicts itself when you read it, you say, oh, it says this over here in the Old Testament, but something completely different over here in the New Testament. Let me submit to you that it wasn't God getting it wrong. It's us reading it wrong don't be so arrogant as to say that God got it wrong. How about you keep on reading and figure out where you got it wrong? And that was a tough thing for me to learn. And if you need even more evidence as to the validity of the Bible, just look at what scientists call string theory today. And we'll be honest, I um, this next point I'm about to make, I actually heard from a pastor named Pastor Chad Harvey at Cross Assembly in Raleigh, North Carolina, formerly known as RFA Church. And when I heard this, It made so much sense that I had to go back and verify it for myself because I don't just take people's word for it. I need to see the facts for myself before I really start believing in something. But scientists believe that matter can be broken down beyond electrons and quarks into tiny loops of vibrating strings. And these strings move and vibrate at a different frequency, giving particles distinctive properties like mass and charge. That's what they call string theory. Wait a second, vibrating strings? different frequencies, it's almost like they're talking about a sound wave. In fact, that's exactly what they're describing here as a sound wave. The same kind of sound wave that comes out of your mouth when you speak. The same kind of sound wave that's coming out of the speakers as you listen to this podcast. I submit to you that scientists have been studying the power of God's voice that was mentioned in Genesis 1-3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God spoke and string theory began from his mouth to your ears. And if everything goes back to vibrating strings and string theory, and scientists have been studying, you know, God's spoken word from Genesis 1-3, then that really explains Proverbs 18:21 as well, where death and life is in the power of the tongue, because we're made in the image and likeness of God. So that means if God created out of his mouth, we can create out of ours granted on a limited scale. If most of the Bible is true and has been factually, scientifically confirmed, historically confirmed, I submit to you that all of it's true because you can't accept part and not accept all. If you try to say that the Bible is not an authoritative book because you can't prove all of it, then you put yourself in a very arrogant position as you know everything. I'd be real careful to say that I knew everything because I'll be the first to tell you I don't. Once you've allowed yourself to believe that God gave you the Bible as a tool, then that means that God gave you this tool to help you build and maintain a house of relationship with him. This is a tool for your toolbox. In fact, if I had to compare it to a tool that's used today to build houses, I'd have to compare it to a blueprint. The Bible is the blueprint for your house of relationship with God. Study it. That way you know what the walls are supposed to look like. And that's actually all the time we have for today. And I hope that this helped you realize the first tool that you have to really build this relationship with God, and that is the Bible. Second Timothy said it best. It's here to correct us and to guide us and to lead us into righteousness with God. I hope you come back next week to learn about another tool God gave us to help build the relationship with Him. Until then, be bold, be strong, and be blessed.